This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. We've talked, as has been said, about things pertaining to God's word and God's truth being the standard. And it seemed odd to me to have an entire series of sermons go by and at least not, not, not at, at least one time talk about God's word and God's standard as it relates to how we become a child of God, how it is that we're saved. And so tonight we're going to devote our study to that. And we're going to use an example in Scripture of the Apostle Paul and when he became a Christian. You are probably familiar with the fact that earlier in the narrative of his life, he's referred to as Saul. And so tonight's study is about the conversion of Saul. And like with everything else we've talked about together this week, we're just going to let God's word and God's truth be the standard. Look. There are a lot of different ideas about how to be saved. We're all friends. We have friends that go to different churches that share different beliefs, and you may have different beliefs than what you'll hear taught here tonight. We love the Lord. We love his word, and we love to investigate his word. And when we surround issues like those moral issues we talked about earlier in the week, we can lock arms and feel comfortable with that and know that the world doesn't feel comfortable with us. But we feel confident in standing on the truth of God's word. And I want to ask that we be the same tonight as we investigate the issue of salvation. Wherever you land, just always love the Lord and love his book and love investigating and understand it's not my way versus your way or we can all have our own way. It's God's truth. End of story. And if we'll seek God's truth with an open and an honest heart, a good attitude like what we studied about last night, then we can't help but come out better in the long run. And you know what else? We're still going to love each other just the same. Because that's what the Lord wants us to do. Let's talk about these things together. The conversion of Saul. The conversion of Saul is recorded three different times in the book of Acts. Once it's recorded in Acts chapter 9, where we have the narrative of the original occasion where it happened. Later on in a series of court appearances, Paul brings it up twice. Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26, he retells the story of his conversion. And in each time, there's a little bit of detail that's not in the other accounts. And when you put all three together, you get a fuller picture. Each count as a standalone account is certainly true, but in that sense, it's sort of like a smaller version of what we have with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all true. They all just give different details about the life of Jesus. And so it is with these three different reckonings of the conversion of Saul. They're all true. And in each one we'll find little pieces of detail that help complete the picture. Let's look together now. In Acts chapter 9, I'm going to read for us. Acts 9, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 18. 
Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <coughs> and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard voices saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. Continuing in verse 10, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and in putting his hand on him, he might receive <coughs> his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said to him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel for me to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and putting his hand on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately it fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received his sight forthwith and arose <coughs> and was baptized. This then is the accounting the original narrative of the conversion of Saul. There are a lot of different ways that we could approach this story, but I think the way that will benefit us for the purposes of the study of the hour is we're just going to interrogate the story. We're going to ask questions about the story and about Saul. We're going to ask what kind of person was Saul? before being converted, I mean, of course, at the beginning of the story. Did Christ's appearance save Saul? You know, there's a lot of people that would insist that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus there when Jesus appeared to him. And then that later on, he met up with Ananias and was baptized and those other things happened. We're going to investigate the narrative of Scripture and see what Scripture says. Was Saul saved when he repented? Something else we can notice about Saul was after Jesus appeared to him and talked to him, he had a change of heart. <clears throat> he had a change of attitude. He was very regretful and remorseful for things that he had done against the cause of Christ. Is that what saved him? 
Was he saved when he prayed? You might have noticed in the narrative when the Lord was talking to Ananias to tell him to, to get with Saul, he said, he's praying. Well, I bet, I bet he was. <laughs> and Jesus came to him and said, you know, why are you persecuting me? When the Son of God asks you that question, you'll get on your knees. <laughs> you'll start trying to get things right. So certainly he was praying. Well, there are some who believe that that's how a lost person is to be saved, that if you're lost and you want to be saved, you need to pray as a sinner and in that prayer ask to be saved. I wonder if Saul asked for something like that. Well, Jesus told him he was in trouble. Don't you think he would have asked to get out of trouble? If, if he's praying, don't you think he was praying to make those things right? Well, did it work? Is prayer calling on the name of the Lord when you get into the issue of the idea of praying in order to be saved, some would read a passage that says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved, and say, see, that's praying. Well, I can understand someone reading a phrase, call on the name of the Lord, and think, well, maybe that's telling us to pray. Let's investigate that as it relates to the case of Saul. You might have noticed in the narrative that Ananias called him Brother Saul. Well, I called some of you fellows brother this evening when we greeted. If I didn't this evening, I probably did yesterday evening or the evening before. If I haven't yet, I probably will before the week's over. Well, why would I call you brother? Because we're family in Christ. So some read that where Ananias said, Brother Saul. And they say, see, he's already family in Christ there because he was saved on the road to Damascus. You know what? I can understand somebody reading that and thinking, well, he must have been a brother in Christ. I can understand someone having that, that idea. We're going to investigate that and see if that's what the case is. What was Saul's condition just prior to being baptized? To hear some tell it, he was already saved. <laughs> To hear some tell it, he wasn't saved yet. Let's let God tell it and see what he says. What role did baptism play in Saul's salvation? Was it irrelevant? Did it demonstrate something that had already happened on the road to Damascus? Let's see what the Bible says. These are the questions that we'll ask about the conversion of Saul. What kind of person was Saul? You know, this is important. It's not important just for the academic reasons of knowing a little bit about the life of uh, the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. I mean, that's nice to have that information, but there's practical value in the pursuit of the answer to this question. And I hope you can see that as we unfold this part of, this, of the study. Look in Galatians 1 with me, if you would, please, in verse 13 and 14. He said, you've heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my, uh, e many my equals in mine own nation, <clears throat> being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. This is Paul writing to Christians in a region known as Galatia that was both an ethnic region and it was also a political region within the Roman Empire. And there was apparently several congregations in that area. And Paul is writing them and in accomplishing the purposes of his letter, he goes back and talks about the kind of man he was before becoming a Christian. He says, I was a religious man. I was in the Jews' religion. And he depicts himself as a very zealous man. 
Now let's take note of this. This is very important. You can be very religious, very devoutly religious, more zealous than anybody else in that religion, and still be lost. Keep that in mind. Notice what he said of himself when he wrote to the saints at Philippi in Philippians 3, verse 5 and 6. Paul wrote of himself that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, when he says blameless, don't take it that he's saying, I never did anything wrong or I never made a mistake. That's not what the word that's translated blameless means. It means he's above reproach. It's kind of a comparative term. He's speaking of how he lived and the manner in which he lived was above reproach. It was consistent with the standards of his beliefs. He was so representative of the standards of that Jewish faith, he referred to himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's kind of like we might uh, talk about a fellow who's, you know, extra strong and extra masculine and extra rugged. We might say he's a man's man. And that's what Paul is saying about his faith. <laughs> I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If you want to turn that into, you know, a masculinized religion, then he was a man's man in his faith. He was really strong. And he was really lost. Because he was outside of Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you tonight, we've already read it this week. We read it in the first service. You can't be saved without Jesus. And somebody getting mad and denying that doesn't change it. That's God's truth. And that's how it is because that's how God said it is. Not because that's what I think or what anybody else thinks. That's because that's how God said it is. However, of a... devout religious person he might have been, Saul was not free of sins and he needed to sin sacrifice and under that system he didn't have anything that would take away his sins. Well, I know he had the blood of bulls and goats at the temple but the Hebrew, later, uh, Hebrew writer later said of the blood of bulls and goats it's not possible that that would take away sins. There's only salvation in the blood of Christ and as an admirable and zealous person that he was, Saul was apart from the blood of Christ, and he was lost. Do you notice what all he said about his activity of persecuting the church? From one perspective, we could say he was really religious and really devout and kind of paint a picture that makes you admire and respect the fellow. Let's talk about the same man and the same story from a, an adjusted perspective. Let's talk about the perspective of the family that's worshiping Christ and minding their own business and somebody kicks the door open and it's Saul of Tarsus and he comes in with soldiers and they start taking people and dragging them off to jail. Let's talk about it from the perspective of Stephen's family in Christ there at Jerusalem as Saul held the garments of those who stoned Stephen to death for just talking about Jesus. Same guy, operating under the same zeal, following the same religion. But now we've looked at it from a different perspective. We're starting to see his sin is what we're starting to see. And we're not just seeing his sin. We're seeing the extremity of his guilt before God. 
If I kept on painting that picture and developing that idea of him, you know, dragging somebody's mama off, you know, he held men and women to prison. He taken somebody's grandma. People are being beaten. They're being put to death. They're being compelled to deny their faith in Jesus. He's trying to drive people from the faith. We could go on and on developing that idea, and before long we'd kind of be mad about the old boy, wouldn't we? Can somebody that rotten be saved? You think about that. Some people get the idea that, you know, I've just sinned too much. I've done too much wrong. God doesn't want people like me. Salvation is for better people than I. And I want to tell you, that's not true. Salvation is for the worst of us, even people who persecute Christ and his people like Saul of Tarsus. And if the love of Christ will reach someone like that, it'll reach you. And you know what? It'll even reach me. That's how long God's arm of grace is. That's how much he loves and wants to save. It's such a broad love that he loves his worst enemy. You know, Jesus taught us to love our enemies, didn't he? There are some people that think God only loves a few people and he doesn't love others. I'm going to tell you, God's love is not smaller than what he told mine and yours to be. He told us to love everybody, even in our enemies. And in doing that, we're being like our father. That means God loves his enemies too. And any teaching that says otherwise is a wretched portrayal of the nature of God. That's not what the scriptures tell us about the nature of God. The scriptures tell us that God is a God who loves even his worst enemy. And Saul chose to make himself a bitter enemy of God when he persecuted the people of God. But Jesus still loved him and yearned to save him. In Acts 23 and verse 1, Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now let's soak that in for a moment and really absorb its significance. Paul, with these words, winds back the clock, turns back the pages of the calendars, and goes all the way back to when he was persecuting Christians and he was zealous in that other religion and he's doing all those things that we talked about up until now in our study. And he said, everything I did, I did in a good conscience before God. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. And that shows us something very, very important. Your conscience can mislead you. Your conscience can be misinformed. You can deeply and earnestly and zealously be certain that you're right and then wake up one day and realize God's standard has something else to say about it. You think about that. Saul had to look over a lifetime of zeal and ardent fervor and hard labors doing hard things, going full bore pedal to the metal and look at the proverbial man in the mirror and say, I thought I was doing the right thing. And learn with bitter hurt 
that he was wrong in that and he had offended his God. Did Christ's appearance save Saul? Was Saul saved when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus? Let's think about this for just a moment. In Acts 22 and verse 16, this is one of the, uh, you might say, court recountings where Paul in his trials or in his legal proceedings retold the story of his conversion. And this is the part he tells where Ananias came to him and baptized him. He said, now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Now I've got a timeline over here to just represent this event happening at some point on this timeline. This is Saul being baptized and the Bible says his sins were washed away. His sins were removed in that moment. That's what Ananias said. Now let's get a, a grip on who Ananias was. He was the preacher that God handpicked to preach to Saul of Tarsus. I wonder if God knows how to pick a preacher to get the job done that he wants done. You know, God could have hunted till he found a preacher that would have told Saul something besides that. But instead, he picked Ananias. And so because Ananias was the preacher that was handpicked by God, I believe he's going and telling Saul what God wanted him to be told. And Paul later in life said, he told me to be baptized and wash away my sins. Now on that same timeline, when did Jesus appear? A few days before. Now let's look at that with a thought process of, was Saul saved at that moment that Jesus appeared to him? I mean, I can see why somebody would read the story and think, man, he saw Jesus, he called him Lord, he fell down, he's begging him. I mean, okay, he was saved there. I could see somebody drawing that conclusion. That doesn't seem reckless to me until we get to the full record. And when we look at the full record of Scripture and take everything in the standard of God's Word and let that light shine upon it, then we've got a problem with that idea. Because if Jesus saved him back here, he forgot to take his sins away. Because three days later, God had to send a preacher to say, oh, by the way, <laughs> your sins hadn't been washed away yet. We need to take care of that. I'm going to tell you the Jesus I served is the one who died on the cross for our sins. And that Jesus doesn't save without taking your sins away. He doesn't save partially. He doesn't do sloppy work. When he saves, he saves completely. And that salvation involves the removal of the guilt, taking away of sin. This is why I don't believe Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. Well, if he wasn't saved, then why did Christ appear to him? Hey, I think that's a fair question. Because I could understand reading the story and thinking, well, Jesus must have appeared to him to save him. And if he wasn't saved in that moment, then why did he appear to him? Let's investigate that. We'll take our investigation back to Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look where the apostle Peter was talking about Judas and how Judas Iscariot had hanged himself and so that left a vacancy in the apostleship and so they had to select somebody to take his place. 
And so in talking about this problem, the apostle Peter is talking about the credentials you had to have to be an apostle. The credentials that you had to have to fulfill the void that Judas had left. Acts 1 now verse 21 and 22. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So he says to fulfill this apostolic work, you've got to be a witness of the resurrection. Now that means more than just saying, I believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's somebody saying, I witnessed it. I saw the empty tomb. I saw him alive after his death. That's the kind of witness of the resurrection that they're looking for. So to be an apostle, to have these apostolic credentials, you had to be somebody who had seen Jesus alive after his death. You had to be a witness of the resurrection. In Acts 26 now, verse 16 through 17, Paul again retelling the story of his conversion and he talks about things that Jesus said to him out there on the road. Jesus said, rise and stand upon thy feet for I have appeared to thee for this purpose. Hit the brakes. Jesus is going to tell us why he appeared to Saul. To make thee a minister and a witness. Both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send thee. Jesus said, I appeared to you to make you a servant, to make you a witness so you could witness the resurrection from the dead because without that, he couldn't be the apostle Paul. He'd just be Paul. And Jesus wanted him to be an apostle. And in order to have those apostolic credentials, he had to see Jesus alive after his death and resurrection so that he could tell people, I saw him alive. You know, there's some people today that claim to be apostles. And you've got those kind of claims being made in a lot of different religions. Let's see what the Bible says about those claims. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, This is Paul later writing about different ones who witnessed the resurrection, who saw Jesus alive after his death. And he said, after listing several others, he said, last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Paul said, I'm the last one to have seen Jesus. He's the last one to have received or obtained those apostolic credentials. And you can't be an apostle without that. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 1. We read that earlier. So nobody today can be an apostle. I know some say they are. They do. A lot of people say a lot of things. But God's truth is absolute. God's truth is the standard. And God's truth says no. Paul was the last one. You know, there have been different times through the years someone would tell me they were an apostle. And I'd bring up Acts 1. Well, to be an apostle, you've got to witness the resurrection. And they'll just say, oh, no problem. I've seen Jesus. Okay. Paul said he was the last one. Now who's telling the truth and who's lying? You remember Sunday morning study, let God be true and every man a liar. It's not hard to figure out where the truth is. 
In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, Paul talked about his apostolic credentials when he said, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He was having problems at Corinth. He's trying to establish his credibility here. And he talks about his apostleship and he tied that to the fact that he had seen Jesus Christ because those two went hand in hand. So why did Jesus appear to Saul if it wasn't to save him? It was to give him that missing credential so that he could say, I've seen the risen Jesus. He is alive. That was why Jesus appeared to Saul. That enabled him to that apostolic ministry. Well, but you know, Saul was very repentant, very remorseful. Wasn't he saved when he was repented? Acts 9 and 9 reminds us there he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. You ever go three days without eating or drinking? I mean, people don't do that because they really just want to. There's got to be a pretty strong reason. And if we say, okay, outside of medical reasons, if it's for spiritual reasons, somebody that goes three days without eating or drinking, they're hurting. I believe the moment Jesus said, why are you kicking against the goads or the pricks that Paul was hurting? What Christ did with those words, he's using language that depicts the hurting of animals. The goad or the prick was the stick with the sharp point on the end. And as they would hurt the animals, they might just gently tap, you know, just with the soft tip of the stick. Just gently tap one side or the other to guide the animal to go whichever way they wanted them to go. Sometimes they didn't even have to tap. They could just make a sound with their mouth, and that, the animal would follow that lead. But sometimes the animal would become obstinate. I guess most of you have seen such animals. This is ranching country. And so in that scenario, they would turn that tick to the, stick to the sharp side, and they would poke that animal with the sharp part of that to get them to go a little bit. And some animals were so stubborn and so resistant to that more firm leading that they would kick back against that sharp goad. And when they would kick back against it, it just gouged them even harder. So in their stubbornness, they were making things worse for themselves. They were resisting what would have helped them. Now, I want to tell you, there's deep meaning in Jesus telling Saul, you've been kicking against the goads. Jesus is saying, you've been resisting the way that I've been trying to lead you. And in doing so, you've been hurting yourself. Now, you might say, well, when's Jesus been trying to lead him? You remember in John's gospel when Jesus said he would send the Spirit to inspire people what to preach? He made that promise, didn't he? And we find those early apostles and prophets working under direct operation of that spirit. Today, we have that spirit revealed message in the word of God. And we preach that same message that the spirit gave to those people in that day. You remember one of those people that the spirit inspired and wanted to preach was a guy named Stephen. You can read about him in Acts 6. He had the inspiration of the Spirit and he was teaching people that Jesus was the Christ and they were unable to resist what he was saying because the Spirit was guiding him. He was preaching the truth. That was the prompting of heaven working from Christ, sending the Spirit, 
working through Stephen and the message that Stephen preached to guide those people towards Christ, just reaching out that goad and tapping. You know, Stephen continued that preaching into Acts chapter 7, and there was an old boy there by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and he got just as mad as everybody else. Instead of humbling himself and obeying the gospel that he heard Stephen preach under heaven's direction, he resisted. He kicked against the goads. With those words, Jesus is calling Saul out and saying, I sent somebody to try to save you and you helped kill him. Of course he was repentant and broken. Of course he didn't eat or drink for three days. He was tore up from the inside out. He learned painfully that he'd been resisting the Lord's effort to reach out to him. When you resist the preaching of the word of God, you're resisting the Lord's effort to lead you. Don't kick against the goads. You see the message? Well, Jesus appeared to him there, and then from that appearance, Saul was repentant. He was regretful. He was remorseful, but three days later, the preacher that God sent said, Hey, guy, you still have your sins. So no, repentance didn't save him. Because Jesus doesn't save in an incomplete way like that. Well, was Saul saved when he prayed? We read it in Acts 9 and 11 a while ago. Behold, the Lord said, he prayeth. The Lord knew that he was praying. The Lord knows when everybody's praying. The Lord knows when a pagan prays to his pagan God. The Lord knows all things. Of course he knew that Saul was praying. We could line them up from here to the road to find people that would say, well, that's what you need to do. If, if, if your heart is convicted that you're in sin and you need to be saved, you, you need to pray. Well, I think if that would work for anybody, it would have worked for Saul. Who's going to pray more sincerely than this guy who just saw Jesus? And he's having to wait for three days to find out what he's supposed to do. Whose prayers will be more fervent and more sincere than that? Did those prayers save him? You know, that same verse answers the question the same way those other questions are answered. Saul was praying for three days, but at the end of those three days, the preacher that God sent, said, hey, buddy, you still have your sins. <clears throat> if anybody in the New Testament practiced what's commonly called the sinner's prayer today, it was Saul of Tarsus, and it didn't work. Because he did it for three days, and the Bible says he still had his sins. When the preaching is God sent, that's the kind of thing you'll hear. Evidently, you need to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. He still had his sins. Well, but you're supposed to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost. He quoted the Joel, Joel the prophet when he said that. It'll come to pass that whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And isn't that praying? You see, to try to hold up this idea that prayer was the way that Saul was to be saved. Well, is, as it pertains to salvation today in the new covenant, does that phrase calling on the name of the Lord, does that mean to just call out to the Lord and ask for salvation? I mean, it makes sense to me that somebody would at least suspect that maybe that's what he means. 
Well, let's investigate. God sent a preacher to tell Saul how to call on the name of the Lord. He said, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In that instance, the way Saul was to call on the name of the Lord was to be baptized. And if he would do that, the preacher that God sent said, your sins will be washed away. I wonder if that's what Peter was talking about in Acts 2 and 21. I don't believe that Peter preached for one denomination and and Ananias preached for a different one. I don't believe that, and I don't think you believe that either. I believe they both preached what the Lord directed them to preach. And when Peter said, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved, and Ananias said, be baptized, call on the name of the Lord and your sins will be washed away, they're talking about the same thing. And by bringing these scriptures together and let their light mutually shine, we understand that the way you call on the name of the Lord in the salvation process is by being baptized in the name of the Lord. Think about the idea of just calling out to the Lord and asking for salvation. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7 and 21? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Calling on the name of the Lord is about more than just saying, Lord, save me. It has to be. Because Jesus himself said, to just say, Lord, Lord, is not enough. You've got to do the will of the Father. Now we've got the Son of God's testimony on the matter. I believe that helps clear up the picture. Well, but Ananias called him Brother Saul. We read that earlier in the Acts 9 narrative. It's repeated here in Acts 22 and 13 when Saul later on was retelling about his conversion. He came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. The same hour I looked up upon him. So isn't that indicating that Saul must have been a Christian brother? Man, I wouldn't blame anybody for looking at that and suspecting that might be the correct conclusion. Let's dig just a little bit deeper and see what we can learn. Let's go back to Stephen's sermon and see what he said to the mob that killed him, including Saul of Tarsus. He said, men, brethren, and... Did you see that? Men... Brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charan. Ananias is not the first guy to call Saul's brother Saul. The man that Saul helped murder for preaching the gospel called him brother, as well as a whole mob of unbelievers. Stephen called them brethren. Why? Well, he tells us why. If we'll read it, he said, our father Abraham. You know, that's what makes brothers brothers is having a common father. I guess quite a few of you know that I have an older brother named Mike, and then my oldest brother's name is Jim. Jim and Mike are my brothers, and you know what? I'm their brother. Now, isn't that a coincidence? And you know why the three of us are brothers? Because Billy Ray Minson is our father. We have a common father. 
And that's what makes us brothers. And that's what made Ananias and Saul and every other Jew a brother. They had a common father. His name was Abraham. When Ananias referred to Saul as brother Saul and Stephen referred to him as brethren along with many others, they were referring to their national brotherhood they had as the chosen nation in the, in the offspring of Abraham because Abraham was their common father. <clears throat> you know what's interesting? Later on, the apostle Paul did the same thing in Acts 22 when he's preaching to a group of unbelievers. He said, men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I now make to you. And he refers to unbelievers outside of Christ as brethren. Not because they were brothers in Christ, but because they were brothers in nationality with the common father of Abraham. Can you see that's a solid Bible-based answer to that? A very good question. That's a Bible-based answer to that question. So what was Saul's condition then prior to being baptized? How many times have we read it tonight? You could file preachers by one by one today. What would they say to Saul? A lot of them would say, you're good. Some of them would say, well, you need to study a one-year catechism before we can even talk about you being baptized. There's something to tell him that. That's a long wait. Well, what would a preacher say if God sent him? You know, when you've got it in the Word of God right in front of you, you don't have to speculate. All you've got to do is just read it and then decide, am I going to believe it and obey it? Or I'm going to say, yeah, but when God sends a preacher, here's what he told Saul his condition was prior to being baptized. Why tarest thou rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The preacher that God sent testified to Saul that he still had his sins. They still need to be dealt with. Now let's bring to bear something that needs to be said. Later on, Paul wrote about salvation in the Roman letter in Romans 5 and verse 1. He said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, you're justified by faith. Then how can it be that he wasn't saved or his sins weren't washed away until he was baptized? How does that even work? think that's an outstanding question we would be irresponsible if we didn't ask that question I mean if we're reading through the book of Acts and we get to 22 which is near the end of the book of Acts and we see that and say okay he's got to be baptized what's the very next book in the New Testament the way ours is arranged it's Romans and five chapters in the same guy we were reading about in Acts 22 says you're justified by faith so why wouldn't I look at that and conclude that Paul was justified the moment he thought, okay, I guess Jesus is the Son of God after all? Good question. So let's poke around on it a little bit and see what we can figure out. Number one, in Romans 5 and verse 1, what did Paul here say you have when you're justified by faith? Well, he said, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, right up to the point that he was baptized, I mean, before that happened, did Saul of Tarsus have peace with God? He won't eat. He won't drink. He won't stop praying. And he still has his sins. That's not somebody that has peace with God. Apparently, he hadn't yet been justified by faith at that point. Because if he had been justified by faith at that point, then he would have had peace with God. And that means he wouldn't have had any sin. And peace with God brings peace of mind. He could have something to eat and he could have something to drink and he could have the peace of mind that he was at peace with God. But he didn't have those things. Therefore, I conclude from what he wrote under the Spirit's direction that he hadn't yet been justified by faith. Well, well, then how does all that work? It's not within the scope of this study to give a full treatment of what it means to be justified by faith. So I want to say just a few words that I think will help us all with this question. And I hope you're listening carefully. Faith doesn't just change what you think. Faith changes what you do. Now I'm going to give you a moment to absorb that. What's the chapter of all the heroes and heroines of faith in the New Testament? Some of you immediately thought Hebrews 11. If you're inclined to do so when you go home tonight, read Hebrews 11. And you'll read about all these people that by faith, they did. By faith, they acted. By faith, they obeyed. By faith, they built. By faith, they moved. Why? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the Hebrew author to talk about faith in that way? The answer is simple. Because faith doesn't just change what you think. Faith changes what you do. So on the road to Damascus, somewhere in there, Paul changed what he thought about Jesus. But he wasn't done changing what he did. And his faith led him to change what he did. When finally the God-sent preacher told him what to do, because that's what Jesus said will happen, go to Damascus, and there it will be told you what you must do. So faith has changed what he's thought. He's ready to change what he's doing. And as soon as he learned what that was, he did it. And what that was, was arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. That's when his faith was put into action and it changed what he did. And that's when his faith justified him. And that's when he had peace with God. And that's when the Bible says his sins was taken away because that's what you have when you have peace with God. So what role did baptism play in Saul's salvation? That was the point at which the blood of Jesus took away his sin. Revelation 1 and 5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There was no washing with the water itself when Ananias told Saul to be baptized. The washing was done by the blood of Jesus. That's the saving agent. Because, go back to the beginning of our study, there is no 
salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We must have his blood to be saved. And that blood saves us because that blood is what washes away our sins. And Acts 22 and 16 tells us when that happens. A preacher sent by God told Saul of Tarsus long ago, this is what you must do. Why are you waiting? And Saul did it. And he was saved. A religious man that had been lost found Jesus and was saved. A terrible man that had done terrible things, hard to forgive, found forgiveness in God. And you can find that too. We want to help you do that if you've not been baptized into Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, but you're struggling and you're discouraged, you know that happens. I struggle and I get discouraged. And every saint gathered here this evening sometimes struggles and gets discouraged. Elders, deacons, their wives, their families, the finest senior saints, you know, whoever you think's the strongest here tonight, sometimes they struggle and they get discouraged. But we're here for each other and we're here to help you. We would love to help you with our prayers if we might at this time or if you wish to become a Christian. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.